Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hello, may I come in? Why, of course you can, but please announce yourself. I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at your grocer. Yes, Chef Boyardi is a real guy. Ettore Boyardi. And that is, in fact, how the brand itself pronounced it, at least in 1953 when that commercial ran. Ettore, later anglicized to Hector was something of an Italian food pioneer. He was chef at the Plaza Hotel. He was a cook for presidents. And his food, though as appetizing to an Italian family like mine, as appetizing as tofu burgers are to a bear, turned out to be a hit. Boyardi, Boyardi, sold his line of gloopy spaghetti in a can for almost $6 million in the 1950s. Boyardi knew that the American palate was amenable to most combinations of starch and tomato sauce, plus his advances in beefaroni technology went down easy to a populace that found spam acceptable. But you know what Boyardee was never stupid enough to do? Well, here's the latest from Yahoo Finance. Domino's, who had originally planned to open more than 800 stores across Italy, will now close after seven years, all 29 remaining on the Italian peninsula. Italian consumers simply never warmed to American-style pizza. I'd argue they were never exposed to American-style pizza. They were sold Domino's in Italy. Ettore Baiardi was never dumb enough to try that move. Panda Express won't fly in Beijing. And guess what? There literally are no Taco Bells in Mexico. America is the place where we rip off your cuisine and mass market an unchallenging bland version of it to our people to great acclaim. It is not, however, the place where we then sell it back to you and tell you it's better. Yes, we do do that with entertainment and music, but not with food, at least not successfully as of yet. So ask your grocer for Chef Boyari's spaghetti dinner with meat or mushroom sauce, won't you? And look for other Chef Boyari's products. They're also delicious, they're also nourishing. They're just not available in Italy, because I'm not that stuna, capisce? On the show today, what was once the greatest threat to American law enforcement ever, now turns out to be a supposed exercise to plant evidence. The Mar-a-Lago file cabinet transfer as tragedy, then farce, and somewhat of a casus belli. But first, Jason Kander ran for president. He then decided to run for mayor of Kansas City. He wound up dropping out after coming to realize how much his 11 years of PTSD had affected him and his family. The author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, and host of the podcast Majority 54, Jason Kander, up next. Jason Kander was the Secretary of State of the state of Missouri, which is interesting because it is not even a title that is mentioned in the blurb for his new book. He is identified as a former army captain 
who served in Afghanistan. He's the president at the Veterans Community Project. He does have the Majority 54 podcast. But I think the fact that his political office isn't prominently listed gives you an insight into Mr. Kander. His new book is called Invisible Storm, Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. He's back on the gist. Thanks for coming on again, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me back. I enjoyed it last time. I'm going to ask you a question that I think actually might just sound funny, especially if my intonation is on point, but I think it has a real answer, which is this. What is more rare for someone to show up in a psych ward and honestly claim that they had an hour and a half long meeting with Barack Obama or for someone to have an hour and a half long meeting with Barack Obama about running for president who really should spend some time in a psych ward? (laughs) Well, I think that the first thing is more rare because I think that the truth is is that a large percentage of people who run for president should probably go to therapy at some point. A large percentage of people generally should. Yeah, no, that was that was my answer. Yeah. My answer was that because many people who are prominent, as your book points out, who are prominent and successful and powerful and maybe didn't have that White House meeting but the equivalent, may, many of them should get some help and have unaddressed issues. Yeah, look, I think we all do better when we've uh, dealt with our shit, um, but I think that it would be great if more of our leaders dealt with their shit, which... Sometimes when I say that, I think people hear that because I am a former politician and people hear a lot of what I say through the lens of, is he a current politician? And I think when I say that, people feel like I'm shaping a question so that I'm the answer. Uh, But it's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, like, the reason I wrote this book is because I'd like more people to deal with their stuff because they'll be glad they did. And do you see that happening, not just in the book, but in how public you've been with talking about your service and uh, and the resonances thereof? Yeah, that's been one of the most rewarding things about the last um, four years of my life, ever since making the announcement that I was going to go get help and then getting help. And now it's in overdrive with with writing the book, uh, is that I just hear from people literally every day who, because they heard me talk about it, or now because they read the book, they decide they're going to go get help, or they decide now they really understand what their dad went through after Vietnam, or... But but I just I do hear from two groups that mean the most to me, which is people, whether they're veterans or not, who decide after reading the book that they're going to go get help. Or I hear lately from a lot of trauma therapists who are like, I understand my patients better because of this book. I'm going to buy more copies. I'm going to hand it out to my patients. Um, that means a lot to me. Was part of your trauma telling yourself that you, uh, compared to your fellow soldiers, didn't deserve to have the label of traumatized? Yeah, I think... I don't, I don't know, because I'm not a clinician, I don't know whether to define it as like part of my trauma, but it definitely was part of what made that decade suck a lot more, uh, is that that is a big part of what kept me from going to get help, is because in my mind, look, um, you know, I hadn't fired my weapon, I'd been in some very dangerous situations, and I'd had a very dangerous job, but because I had this preconceived notion about what equaled combat, uh, I said to myself, well, this isn't it, which I was wrong, but that's what I said. And then that prevented me, among other things, from going to get help. So it's like that uh, lengthened my trauma. It, 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 it just delayed my opportunity to deal with my trauma. And how did your uh, trauma show up or every, whatever you went through, how did it show up 
in ways that became unmanageable? Because a lot of the book is really interesting about how you channeled it into ways that seemed productive. And I would say for probably some of your constituents were productive. But in what ways did it really begin presenting itself as something that can't be explained away as well, you know, maybe fueling some of my fire? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, Because it's really like, how did I know like, okay, you can't keep doing this, right? Like, and it's two things. Um, the first thing was what made me start to really cons- like what initially had me reconsidering whether I was going to run for president, like, and had me just having real doubts about doing it because it wasn't my prospects. I thought I had as good a prospects of winning as anybody. I'm not saying I was like a front runner, but I, I knew I was like right to be in the field, but I was getting increasingly exhausted. And, and the thing about that was, is that I had had the energy, despite the fact that I had I couldn't get a good night's sleep and I was a, on like this high edge alert all the time. The endorphin highs were carrying me through for years. And what I was doing was I was stringing the endorphin highs together so that I would give a big speech or I'd have a major national interview, national TV interview or whatever, and, and that would carry me through a few days. And so it was that moment in the book where I'm given this big keynote address in New Hampshire and I'm pretty much announcing for president and it goes very well. And when that didn't last for more than 12 hours as an endorphin high and then I still I went, I felt exhausted and empty the next morning, that was like, okay. I don't think this is man. Like I don't think I can do this. That's what made me pivot to say, well, I'm going to go, you know, run a, a front runner campaign for mayor, become mayor. But then the flashing red light for me that made me look at myself and say, okay, I have PTSD. Is it started with just having suicidal thoughts that were becoming more and more frequent, despite you know objectively having enormous success in what I was doing uh, professionally. And then that got to a point where when I called the veterans crisis line and I heard the tone of the woman's voice on the other end, it was, it forced me to confront the fact that I wasn't able to distinguish myself from all these other vets who had dealt with this and that I, I, you know, she treated me like anybody else because I didn't sound any different to her. And that forced me to realize I wasn't any different than anybody else who had dealt with this. Were you worried about your public persona when you called that line or at other points in seeking treatment? Yeah. I mean, it's why the first time that I decided I was going to try and get help from the VA, I hadn't even admitted to myself that it was PTSD, but I went to fill out the online paperwork and I held back because, you know, the questions are stuff like, you know, are, do you have, are you, do you feel in, like you're in danger? Have you had thoughts about hurting yourself? Do you ever, you know, patrol your house? And it was all like, yes, yes, yes. But I didn't click yes, yes, yes. Because to me, I was like, well, what if somebody finds out you know, that I am answering yes to all these things. Like I can't go run for president if, you know, that's what I thought. And so that held me back for a long time. And then by the time I was calling the veterans crisis line though, I was in the, like, I didn't give a fuck anymore category. You know, I was, or I was just very close to it. I was, you know, rock bottom. Like I just, I'd run out of ideas and I just desperately wanted to see if there was something I could do to stop my symptoms from getting any worse. I didn't really have any hope at that point of getting better, which is funny looking back on it because I feel like a different person now. But I was just like, maybe I can stop this where it is. 
How much did you keep from your wife, Diana, whose presence in this book, uh, really a great conceit. She shows up and comments uh, in her own words and italicized text as to the things that you're reporting. But my question goes back to when you were seeking treatment. How much did you tell her about the suicidal thoughts? How much did you tell her about, I just gave this really good speech, essentially announcing my run for president and only felt good for half a day? She knew most of it the whole time. And, and that was really hard for her because... Uh, she couldn't share it with anybody. So I could share what I was going through with her, but she had to keep it all to herself. And, you know, she didn't know everything because we didn't understand everything about what was going on with me. So in a way, I didn't know everything, right? And I was so busy suppressing my emotions that I wasn't dealing with them and so I wasn't sharing them with her. Um, but she knew, obviously, that I was having the night terrors because she was laying right next to me. She knew about my hypervigilance, but she adopted it and didn't realize that it was hypervigilance. We just thought it was a dangerous place and we needed, you know, the world was a dangerous place and we needed to be constantly thwarting threats. You're a public figure. People be, could be coming after you, which, you know, isn't... It's it's It must be hard signs of paranoia for people who, to some extent, have reason to be a little bit paranoid. Yeah, I always had a story I could tell myself about why my symptoms weren't symptoms. And and so we both kind of fell into that trap. So Diana was the one person who really knew what was going on with me. But I say that with the caveat of neither she or I really knew what was going on with me. And this keeping it from her totally or her um, bearing some of the burden herself, this was an echo of your deployment where you'd have really nice conversations with her or as nice as one could in the war zone. And you never argued only on her end. She's internally arguing, but never bringing those problems to you out of the belief that she needed to do so to save your life. You're exactly right in that parallel and that she, while I was deployed, felt like I don't want him to be distracted and go and get hurt. So I'm going to just, any disagreement we have, I'm going to be like, you're right. And then she's going to kind of swallow it. And then, you know, by the time I'm getting ready to run for president, she's not happy. Things are not going well, but she feels like what we're engaged in is so important that she's got to suppress that just the way I'm suppressing negative emotions, because I feel like what we're engaged in is so important. And yeah, man, I'm glad we're past that time. It seems to me like you use the word rock bottom and that phrase was echoing in my mind because it seems to me that you were a little bit like the really, really wealthy person with the cocaine problem in that you could afford a lot, but your wealth was your skills, your ability to gain adrenaline by accomplishment. You had legitimate accomplishment after legitimate accomplishment. And I guess one could argue that that was a ballast against your mental demons. But in fact, the way you describe it, it was uh, pushing further and further down the horizon that time that you just crashed and hit rock bottom. Yeah, there's no question that it was my self-medication. And, and one of the things that I tried to get across in the book, because for me, one of the one of my greatest objectives in the book is that nobody could read this book and say, well, this doesn't apply to me, right? Like, I don't want anybody to read it and go, well, I didn't go to Afghanistan. You know, I didn't serve in the military. So that's why it's, you know, I, I feel like it touches trauma generally. But also, I don't want anybody who maybe did those things to go, okay, but I ended up with a drug problem. Why did candor not like, and then judge themselves for it. And so what I'm trying to make clear in there is like, look, what I had in front of me 
and I didn't know I was doing this, but what I had available to me in order to make life livable with these disruptive memories was my career. And I could throw myself into it. I could go after these endorphin highs. I could perform as a politician, and that would quiet the invisible storm in my mind. But if I hadn't had that self-medication available to me, well, then what would, I mean, maybe it would have been cocaine. Maybe it would have been drinking. You know, who knows? And so to me, it's like, yeah, I'm fortunate that it. Uh, I ended up inheriting from the former version of myself a platform because of that, but it doesn't really make it any different in terms of what I used as a coping mechanism. Do you recognize this trait in other politicians, other highly achieving people who you've recognized and come across in your life? Not necessarily PTSD, but just the idea of achievement as self-medication. Yeah, uh, it definitely has, without... Without judging people, it has uh, uh, caused me to sometimes see people in the public eye. I don't want to say differently, but maybe with through a different lens, right? So, like having having been at you know near the the mountaintop of of national politics and having experienced what it's like. I mean, I've pretty much run for president. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have a huge team around you. I know what it's like to do this and that and hang out with this Hollywood star and all that stuff. That when I look at like The Rock's Instagram, whereas most people look at it and they're like, well, man, like he's now he's on a private jet and he's doing, oh, man. And I look at it and I, and this maybe sounds strange, I sometimes just feel kind of bad for The Rock. And I don't know if like The Rock has something he's trying to outrun. Or I have no idea. I'm not going to like, I'm not a clinician. I'm not going to try and psychoanalyze the guy, but I look at it and I go, well, that I get that that can be fun. But like at some point, everything is not fun. At some point you just want to be with your family and you just want to slow yeah. down. And so yeah. when I you see, you want to eat your thousands of calories. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And when I, when I see, when I see somebody, anybody who's having to keep up that pace over a very long period of time, because it's one thing like, you know, I'm on this book tour. So like I've kept for the last four weeks, a, a pretty frenetic pace. But I'm coming to the end of that, and I'm very thankful for that. And and it was like pretty fun for about a week. But I, that because I'm in a healthy place now, after a week, I was like, I want to get back to like coaching Little League and, you know, doing the stuff I want to do. And I look at folks like that, and I, you know, sometimes maybe they're very happy doing it. But I also think like, have they stopped to ask whether they're very happy doing it? I don't know. That's an interesting insight. I was thinking more of uh, politicians. And, I, you know, for some reason, I was thinking about Hamilton, maybe not the real Hamilton, though, the one reflected in the Cherno biography and the musical about how everything in his life was, you know, trying to address this psychological pain from being this uh, orphan in the Caribbean and writing, essentially writing his therapy into, if not the Constitution, then the Federalist Papers. There must be so many people who are actually effective public servants, and the thing they're driven by is some sort of pain or trauma or something other than what we would deem the most functional um, as opposed to dysfunctional relationship to one's own emotions. I wonder if you think that, like, to some extent, even the good parts of America are driven by this. I think that's a, I think that's a great point, and I think it's likely. I mean, look, I was a pretty effective politician, and I still have trouble sorting out how much of that was just the way I was raised and what I cared about and how much of that was, you know, the fact that, I had all those things, the way I was raised, what I cared about, but I also had this fire, this search for redemption inside me. Um, now, here's the funny thing about that, though, is that I've now been 
out of public office for five years. And in that five years, I have made a far greater impact on the world than I did in the period before that. In fact, I have been out of the business of seeking public office of electoral politics now for uh, four years. And in that four years, I've made a much bigger impact than all the years before it. So it's hard for me to say, like, I, yes, I absolutely think when I look at somebody like President Biden, who's had no shortage of tragedy in his life, um, I don't know, you know, I've spent time with President Biden. He, to me, seems like a guy who really has his priorities straight and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, there's no question there have to have been periods in his life where he buried himself in his work because what was going on in the rest of his life was was really difficult to deal with. I mean, I don't judge him for that. There's no question that America has benefited from that. So it's, it is a really hard thing to work out. You were really driven by ethics reform in the Missouri House, right? This was one of your signature issues, exactly because you acted to inf uh, to instill some sort of ethics into uh, Afghanistan and and democracy, bringing democracy abroad. Now, in your case, it was tied up to the PTSD and you trying to self medicate, but you were also impassioned about that. And I would, I'm always fascinated by the line of when it becomes, you know, dangerous and when the, um, when the motivation becomes something less than healthy. But it is also fascinating that the life experience and what you were driven by has this exact through line to what you went through. And I wonder if, you know, you've questioned where that line was and if you think that there are others who are maybe didn't vote with you on those issues or who worse legislators in general who or, or worse people or not as ethical in general who lack these life experiences and are worse off for it. Yeah, it's something I still try and figure out, right? Like where that line is. And, and what I've worked out for myself is that I cared about that stuff for the right reasons. I cared about that stuff because that's how I was raised. And look, I, I was an idealistic kid who grew up, you know, with a certain idea of America and would have been offended at, you know, the knowledge I gained about how government actually worked when I got into it regardless. But the way that I personalized it and the way that I uh, just f took it on as an absolute mission, like a life or death mission, and the way that I developed really negative feelings toward the people who stood in the way, you know, more so than just like an issue where I could have looked at them and like, well, okay, we disagree on that. That I think was a, a combination of, you know, life experience. Just, I mean, like if there had never been a PTSD response to my deployment, still seeing people risk their lives in order to bring you know, some sort of governance to another country and to fight for their own country and then seeing people be unwilling to risk like losing a parking spot if the speaker got mad at him. Like that would offend a normal person. But I think the way I internalized it is more related to my trauma. And then to your question about other politicians, look, I would just say that like with the PTSD stuff aside, I am generally very interested in seeing more people in elected office who have done something harder than get elected to that office. Because if, if the hardest thing you've ever been through in your life is the campaign that got you into office, then you will operate as though the worst thing that could ever happen to you is losing the job that you got, which means every decision you make will be about how do I keep this job? And that's not going to make you very good at the job.
And tomorrow, we'll continue talking with Jason Kander. Some of the subjects will be his assessment of other politicians he's worked with and if they use achievement as self-medication, as he once did. Also, the brutality of politics itself. He is trying to be vulnerable in his real life, but he needs to be armored to succeed in the business of politics. How does he think about navigating that? That's up tomorrow. And now the spiel. Former NYPD police commissioner turned felon turned Trump pardon recipient turned election denier Bernie Carrick was on OAN a couple nights ago, the night the documents were collected at Mar-a-Lago. With his basis of rationality well established, Carrick was asked to analyze the implications of carting off 10 to 15 boxes of paper. This is the first time in my lifetime that I would say I am deathly afraid for Donald Trump. I would not put assassination behind these people. Assassination? That's crazy. But let's engage in a little thought experiment. First, you'll get the answer to this one. What would ideally someone, maybe the anchor in that interview, what would he say when he hears Bernie Carrick predicting assassination? Ideally, it would be something like, Bernie, I can't predict the future, but let's not go nuts here. Assassination because of a file transfer? Come on now. And... Here's the rest of the thought experiment. Wouldn't that be good to say to those who predict that Bernie Carrick and those influenced by his worldview are going to rain down death upon us? A little bit of a come on here. Carrick, after all, sounds untethered to reality, and I could play Fox clips that aren't much more hinged. But that's exactly how the gravest predictions of doom from the resistance sound to Carrick and those of his ilk. Marcy Wheeler is a web-based journalist who's excellent at researching document-based stories. Yesterday, she tweeted about Trump and his they broke my safe complaint with this tweet, quote, there's a lot of reporting about a firestorm caused by the execution of a lawful warrant, but it wasn't caused by the warrant. It was caused by Trump and abetted by unbelievably shitty reporting and that unbelievably shitty reporting is going to get people killed. It was the second time within 10 hours that she warned that someone was now going to die. And I can't tell the future again. I don't know if Trump will be killed. Heavily doubt it. I don't know if any of the 330 million rest of us will be killed because of this development. I'm holding judgment, but I'm skeptical. There is a lot of anger in this country, which is why it's so imperative that we watch our words and curtail our greatest anxieties about the violence that others will do unto us because there's so much anger in this country. On the one hand, we need to do all the reporting on the right-wing paramilitary groups and those who identify with them. On the other hand, the next step of, and they will be waging civil war, it's irresponsible because those very people, the paramilitary groups and people one or two ripples from them, they hear these predictions and they perceive it as a threat to them. And it is a threat to them. If side A perceives that side B is ready to strike, then side B girds for battle or contemplates preemptive strikes. In these kinds of conflicts, every strike is seen as a preemptive strike and there's not much media incentive to ever lower the temperature. I had on Malcolm Nance, author of the book, They Want to Kill Americans, the other week. He has a more apocalyptic worldview than I do, but I thought it was good to engage him. 
The sirens aren't as loud to most people as they are to Malcolm, I thought. Well, maybe most people are just checked out on this, but they want to kill Americans hit number seven on the New York Times bestseller list last week. It is a message people are receptive to. It is a message that people, the reading public, MSNBC viewers, certainly a lot of people in this audience, is a message that they believe, that you believe, some of you. And yeah, there are right-wing militias out there and lone gunmen's too with hate in their hearts and arsenals in their basements. And law enforcement needs to be aware. And we need to be aware because we need to hold law enforcement responsible. We are not in a healthy place of agreeable disagreement. But there is a big step between that and volleys of tit-for-tat violence. But that step gets less big with warnings that it's about to happen. News media has always exaggerated fears and threats for attention. It's worse now than ever, but it's always been true. Here, I was struck by this report from Ari Haight of WPBF West Palm Beach. It is a classic in the reporter in the empty parking lot where something once happened genre. Yeah, we're actually right now along Southern Boulevard, just around the corner from Mar-a-Lago, and this area... Completely quiet, completely empty right now, but that was not the case. That has not been the case for most of this evening. There was another rally here for Donald Trump as the investigation into the former president continues. What we saw were pictures of, I don't know, maybe two or three dozen people waving flags. These pictures were all over the place and dotted stories that had greater predictions about imminent violence. So far as I can sense, for two days, the story that NBC was telling was something like unprecedented, exciting. The story that OAN and the Bannon War Room were presenting was unprecedented, inciting. I also sense that now that Donald Trump, or now that it was revealed that Donald Trump led the fifth in a New York civil investigation, we've moved on a little bit, or the concern of the media in general has moved on. We were talking about the raid about 15 boxes of documents as it was something of a death knell to a peaceable society. No one is going to die over this. I mean, maybe someone will die. I don't know. This is America. It doesn't help anyone, however, to tell your 300,000 followers, as Empty Wheel, Marcy Wheeler has, that death is the consequence for quoting Kevin McCarthy. That is the idea behind her assertion that shitty reporting is going to get people killed. I'm under no illusion that my audience consists evenly or even close to evenly or maybe any at all of both sides, right? One side who thinks that uh, very violent radical right-wingers are a huge threat and another side who thinks that there is a liberal deep state conspiracy to plant evidence against lawful citizens. I don't think that's the dynamic of the split of my audience. I do think it's more like there's a bunch of people listening who are really worried about where things are headed and think that the political process is in a terrible place and the rest of my audience who's really worried about that exactly, but are also worried that we're going to see many more statehouse versions of January 6th, plus it's likely we'll get a few targeted assassinations to boot. I'm not unworried about either. I just know that the liberal slash progressive side's constant predictions that Trumpites are coming to kill us necessarily has bad effects. They want to kill Americans? A lot of people want to kill Americans. Have you noticed? 20,000 Americans did kill Americans in 2020. 65,000 if you include the Americans who killed themselves. 
But anyone who studied threat cycles sees the pattern here. Threat, perception of threat, counter threat, perception of counter threat. It's a spiral that ends in violence. In many of these conflicts, one side is a lot more wrong than the other. If you want me to say entirely wrong, sure, fine. Amanda Ripley's High Conflict is an excellent book about this. But until you consciously extract yourself from the cycle, you can't see that it's a cycle and the cycle will never stop. What I'm saying is you're right. Republican electeds engage in dangerous rhetoric much more than Democrat electeds do, even regular Democratic citizens. Also, there are paramilitary right-wing groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and they're very dangerous, and they deserve inclusion on our watch lists. But just as after 9-11, I wasn't sanguine about the threat of terrorism, and I didn't downplay it, I also thought it was wrong for public messengers to constantly emphasize that we're about to be harmed by future terrorist acts, to act as if future terrorist acts were imminent or inevitable. I think of it as being resolute but reasonable. I tweeted that, quote, both sides have talked themselves into a civil war narrative to such a degree that it becomes more and more likely. Of course, by leading with both sides, and I wasn't blindsided with what happened, people jumped on and said, both sides, you can't say both sides anymore. It engendered a lot of feedback. I did not say that both sides are threatening each other equally. I did say that both sides perceive that there is a threat from the other side. That feeling is inherently escalatory and will inevitably lead to bad outcomes. Unless you recognize it, unless you stand outside of it, and unless you tell the people who may listen to you to rein it in. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Ian Scotto has helped so much this week, but we have remunerated him. Michelle Pesca, sans remuneration, has been doing it all for Peachfish Productions, including acting as a COO. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.